Are you ready to study the Word of God? Me too. Uh, this morning, we have the privilege and the honor of hearing from Pastor Marty Irwin. Now, Marty, I, Marty and I actually went to school together. We didn't know each other real well at ORU, but uh, we were acquaintances, and uh, I had a lot of respect for him there. And over the past year and a half or so of planting one chapel and really getting to know him, that respect level has really gone down. And... Um, <clears throat> And then, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. He said it was mutual. So, uh, no, actually, actually, I can honestly tell you that it has done nothing but go up. And uh, I really love Marty as a brother, and I'm so thankful for him and for Casey. And I can tell you from watching his life closely and, and being exposed to him that he is a man who loves God. He's a man who loves people, loves the Word of God. He is an exceptional pastor. He is a great, great husband. He is about to be a great, great father. And so, so we get the honor of hearing him a little bit of his story this morning. So everybody, would you please welcome Pastor Marty Irwin. So I don't know about the great, great father part. We're going we're gonna to try it out. And uh, if I need some help, I know who to call. It's all of you with five and six and seven kids. You know, Ross uh, has five. Brent has three. And their other brother, Brad, has five. So there's 13 kids with these three boys from the Parsley family. So I'm going to start with one and see how that goes. Is that good? Um, I want you to open your Bibles. I want you to go to Second Timothy. And as you're turning there... Um, I want to say something that would be pretty indulgent for me to say uh, when I'm up here leading worship. And the reason it'd be indulgent is because it might feel like and seem like I'm trying to twist your arm into having an expression of worship that is bold and that is forward. But in all honesty, I do want to thank you for honoring God the way you do, for honoring God in your worship, for being the type of church that isn't afraid to unfold your arms as you sing songs like I am free. Because you know that that's not everywhere, that there's churches that, you know, the expression isn't necessarily there. The heart might be there, and I'm no judge of that, but I do love being in a church where the expression is there, right? Isn't it fun? It's fun to be in a place where we love on Jesus, not just in here, and it's not about how we feel, right? It wouldn't be worship if it was about how we feel. And so I just wanted to honor you. I wanted to thank you for the way you worship. And uh, we're going to study today in 2 Timothy. I'm going to pray in just a moment. But before we do, I just kind of want to reflect on the series. Um, we've been talking about um, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. It's the second one that he wrote to him. It's known as a pastoral letter or a pastoral epistle. It has the nature of being written to one person. That's the only reason why. It's the, the context is that it's not just written to the church at Philippi, let's say, Philippians, but it's written to Timothy directly. And the two books of Timothy and Titus are really the only ones that are in this category. Some people say Philemon is also, however you want to say that word, but that is not necessarily in the pastoral epistles according to most. But most do say that this is the last letter that Paul ever wrote before he died. So all of the context, all the things that he says, it's important for us to look at from that vantage point, that he was in prison, about to die. 
And so I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'm going to read a few verses out of this. And you can almost feel it coming to the end for Paul as he writes in verse 6. He says this, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So can't you feel that? You can feel it coming to an end for this man who had given his life to the Lord. He'd been stoned, some would say even on more than one occasion. And uh, almost died several times. And here he is in prison and he's thinking about all of his relationships, the good ones, the bad ones. But the overarching theme of our study as Pastor Brent has brought us a message, as Pastor Ross has brought us a couple, is in this thought. It's not so much about how we start, but how we finish. It's good news, right? It's not so much about how we start, but how we finish. So I'm going to do a bit of a thematic study, okay? I'm going to follow a thread that kind of goes through 2 Timothy. Um, but before I do, I just want us to pray together. I want us to open our hearts to what the Lord would say to us. So let's just pray. Father... We ask that your words would be clear, though we would open our ears and our hearts to things you want to say to us, that this would be a message that prayerfully would change our lives, would change the way we act, would change the way we think, that we would heal from wounds and that we would move on and we'd continue to press, to press into you, to finish this race in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. We'll turn to Matthew 22, and as you're going there, I'm going to ask you a fairly simple question. So you're going to Matthew 22, and here's the question for you. What makes you, you? Think about it for a minute. What makes you, you? What shapes your worldview, your purpose, your life goals? What molds your decisions and memories? What gives you your experiences in life? What makes you, you? Seems like a lofty question, and there's no way to really answer it. But, you know, I have a feeling that the artists would say, my environment, of course. When the world around me is full of color, I am truly alive. Zen. Peace, love, harmony, unicorns. <laughs> you laugh, but you know people like this. These are the kind of people that they light 12 candles when the daylight is still right up above the sky and the, the sun is beaming down and they're baking cookies in the oven and nobody's there to eat them. It's about environment for them. My wife is like this. <laughs> I'll come home and I'll be like, what's that smell? That's, that's like minty cookies and um, ice cream and, and candles all mixed into one thing. And there's, there's little lamps on and she's got them dimmed down and right to where they're about to turn off and they're just flickering. She's like, yeah, feels good in here. Wanted you to come home to a nice environment. <laughs> and then there are the realist type. They would say, my choices make me me. I make them, and I deal with the consequences. Period. The end. Period. The end. I don't know. Which one is last? I don't get I don't know. I'm kind of that way. The numbers have to add up, right? But it's not our choices. It's not our environment. Here's what my suggestion is to you today. What makes you, you? 
relationships, the people in your life. We are shaped by them, the good and the bad of them all. Aren't you glad that your relationship journey didn't end with your very first crush? Come on, go back there for a minute. Your very first crush. Some of you are like, it did. He's sitting right next to me. <laughs> well, for me, it would have been really weird because my first crush, her name was Kimmy, and I was seven, and she was hot. <laughs> I don't know what hot was at seven, but, you know, she accepted me. She held my hand. You guys are thinking a seven-year-old holding a girl's hand. I was a complicated child. But you know what really it was is that she gave me her brother's baseball cards. It was the best thing ever. I'd show up at their house, and she'd be like, here's one for you. And I found this one. It was in a case, a special case. <laughs> like, yes. This is great. She cut my hair once. Never again, but she cut my hair once right here in the back corner. She just cut a big spot out. But, man, I was in love with that girl. I was smitten by her. I let her cut my hair. I remember my mom, she's like, what happened to your hair? I said, Kimmy cut it. Do you like the haircut, mama? <laughs> Last time that ever happened. It's not so much about how we start in our relationships, but it's about how we finish. You know, Jesus also made much of relationships. So you're in Matthew 22 now, and I'm going to read a few verses. This is where one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, is almost facetiously asking Jesus a question to see if he could stump him. It's verse 36 through 40. I'm going to read these. It says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You can almost see him looking down his nose at Jesus. But very honestly, Jesus replies and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus could have said anything here, right? He could have shut the man down and said, look, you ask me questions like I don't know the answers. But he didn't. He responded with honesty, with integrity, and immediately, and he said basically this, love God, love people. Everything else hangs on these two commandments. Life was never meant to be done alone, right? That's why we're here. Think about this for a moment. You're born into the world, right? You don't have any ambitions. You don't have goals. You don't have memories, really. You don't have any kind of place to set up that life means this. I mean, we do something on a vicious cycle. We eat, we sleep, and we poop. We eat, we sleep, and we poop again. And I just said it that twice, two times. Poop, three. Why do I do that? Stop. Marty has a problem. But then what happens? Relationships, right? Some people nurture you. People enter your life and they care for you. Some people enter your life and they violate you. They injure you. People let you down and yet others pick you up. If you insert selfishness and pride and intolerance, relationships become super complicated. They can end abruptly. If you insert grace and forgiveness, then some relationships can last forever. They can start over for many. 
The fact is, the relationships are the fabric of this life. Love God, love people. So I'm going to open up three categories of people that make you you, and we're going to talk about each one, okay? The first one is the people that choose you. This is your family. And I'm going to lay them all out so you can see these categories. The second one is people that you choose. These are your role models. You might say these are also your mentors, but really not, because mentors fall into the next category, which is the people that choose you back, right? A role model could be somebody that doesn't even know you exist. Now, these obviously aren't cut and dry categories, okay? So go with me. As life unfolds, it's not this easy. Some people will be in one category at a time. Some people will move from one category to the next. Some people will fill all three categories, and then something happens, and immediately they're not in any of them. But the fact is still to remain. It still remains. The people in your world, past, present, and future, they make you you. Life is shaped by the people that choose us, the people that we choose, and the people that choose us back. So go back to 2 Timothy, and we're going to look at the first category for a moment as it pertains to Paul's letter to this young man. The people that choose you, this is your family. These are the people not only that choose you, but they choose you before you can make choices for yourself. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul's writing here to Timothy, and he says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. So already he's pointing to, I'd call it heritage. He's pointing back to people that have lived for God. He says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And then in verse 5 it says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in you, sorry, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Oh, how grateful many of us are for grandmas and moms, right? the influence they've had on our life. Paul was reflecting on this. He was saying, hey, Timothy, I want you to recognize that you've been gifted a heritage. The faith that lived in them that now lives in you. Did you know this? I studied this out this week, and it was something that I'd never seen before. Lois is referred to as a grandmother. In the Greek, that word is mammy. As we would spell it, would be M-A-M-M-Y. Did you know that in all 1,864 pages of this Bible... That is the only time that a woman is referred to as a grandma. Interesting, huh? Paul could have chose anything. He could have said, the mother of your mother. He could have tried to de describe her as just a relative, descendant. But he chose grandma. Why? Because I think he was saying something in scriptures to all of us. It is important to have heritage. It is important to have heritage. Eunice, it's also a Greek name. It means good victory. It's a name derived from the Greek goddess of victory, and her name was Nike, like the shoe. Why is that important? It's not. It's just really cool. <laughs> right? Okay, I can see Timothy. Hey, guess what, man? My mom's name is Nike. Right there, like the shoe. Just do that. I don't know. What am I talking about? Family, these are the people that choose you. I said it before, but before you can make choices for yourself, Eunice and Lois were that for Timothy. His life was shaped by them. For me, I'm going to tell you just a little bit of my story. 
as we go through this message. For me, it was my grandma, Frances, and my mom, Rosalind. They're both about five foot nothing. And I thank the Lord for a six foot three dad because otherwise I'd have been born a hobbit. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Hairiness, weird things going on. Hobbit world was not for me. But do you know those people that you come across that the worst thing they ever did was like think about stealing gum from the grocery store? Right? You ever met somebody like that? I asked Casey the other day, I was like, so babe, what's the worst thing you ever did in your whole life? Well, I think I thought bad about somebody one time. I'm like, what? You're crazy. I was throwing bricks at the back of my brother's head when I was a kid. But in my story, I can now look back and be super grateful for the people that passed faith down to me. A mom that loved the Lord, a grandma that loved the Lord. But it wasn't always that way. I was a rough kid. I grew up in a home that was broken. We all did, right? I mean, I'm being honest. There's not broken home syndrome in some families and not in others. All of them are broken in some way. But I grew up in a home that was very disjointed. There are five divorces between my two parents. When I was 14, I moved out of my home. It's also quite complicated. I moved back in from time to time. But I was a nomad. I lived life my way. I chose an addictive and destructive lifestyle for several years through high school. What I lived for was the moment to make a splash on life, to get a laugh, to have a good time. I made every choice with no regard for consequences or the people that I might hurt. Some of you come from that place. Some of you don't. You've been gifted a great heritage, a great um, decision-making, uh, discipline-driven family. But for me, it wasn't that way. But my grandma, but my mom, they didn't give up on me. I'd be hung over from the weekend and I'd come to church on Sunday morning. My mom knew what I wanted. It wasn't the presence of Jesus. It was food after service. But she didn't condemn me. Did you know that? She didn't condone my behavior either. I mean, think about it. You've got to draw a line as a parent somewhere between this is what I'm going to allow to happen in my home and this is how much I love my kids. You've got to figure out where that is. And some of you, you are struggling with your own, your own prodigal son, your own prodigal daughter. And I look at my mom and I think about the time that she spent, I don't like to admit it, but fearfully wondering if verses like Proverbs 22, 6 were even true. Train your child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Many of you are there now. Like I said, you've got prodigals. And you just can't see how, when, or where things are going to turn around for them. Their choices, their influences, their relationships just seems hopeless. And here's my encouragement to you. I could spend the whole entire morning on it. But my encouragement to you is very simply this. It's in my story that I made it out, that Jesus rescued me, that when I was living my life, doing things my way, a praying mom, a praying grandma, it was those prayers that I even felt then that drew me back to him. So you keep praying. You keep believing.
for Casey and I, this is quite the journey. We're about to have our first little daughter. Her name is going to be Isla Renee Irwin. And I was the guy who had determined I'm not having kids. No way, no how. Because if I have one like me, I'm in big trouble. I wanted to be in control of that same thing from my teenage years. But you know what the Lord revealed to me? It was said to me by a million people. But you know what he revealed to me? At the moment when I said, I'm not ready for this. And it was his timing. At the moment I said, I'm not ready. He said to me, nobody's ever ready. Kids are crazy. <laughs> no book is going to teach you how to raise your kid when he goes running out that door. You're going to have to go chase him. Parenting is a thing. It's something that we adapt to. We put people in our life that can help us, right? So I don't know what your heritage has been like. But you got to look past the people that have failed you and Get to a place somehow that you can move on. Look at 1 Timothy. Go back into that book for a second. In chapter 5. Just one quick minute. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read one verse here. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives. This is 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And especially for the members of his household, why in the world did Paul say this to Timothy? Because he knew something. Family is hard to love. You know how to push their buttons. You know their faults and their failures. And you got to wake up next to them and smell their stinky breath. Right? When you're raising kids, you got to change their diapers. I'm not looking forward to that, y'all. That's crazy. Some of you in this room, you're cruel to me. You've been sending me pictures of your baby's dirty diaper. <laughs> saying, here's what you got to look forward to. Like, delete that mess. Make you change them. Can I tell you what I've decided? You can make this decision for yourself. But no matter what my upbringing was like, good or bad, I'm not going to run from it. I'm learning from it. I'm not going to rehash the same mistakes. I'm not going to fall into the same generational patterns. But I'm going to start new ones. For Casey and I, we're going to do exactly as Proverbs 22, 6 says. And we're going to train little Isla Renee in the way she should go. And we're going to hold to the truth that when she is old, she will not depart from it. Is that good? Can you receive something out of that? Let's go to second. Uh, the second category, these are the people that, choo that you choose. These are your role models. As relationships unfold, there will be those aware of the influence they have in your life. And we'll refer to those as mentors. And really, they fall in the next category because a mentor has to choose you back. But role models don't. Some role models don't even know you exist. Other role models, they might know you exist, but they don't. They don't really know you're watching them. So here's the question. Who do you look up to? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a superstar or a public personality. You know that's happening now more than ever? Because of YouTube and the Internet just wide open for people to see into these superstars' life. What do they call it, Brent? A Justin Bieber fan? 
Believers, what's going on with that now? Come on. People think, wait, wait a minute. Justin Bieber, he knows who I am. I know he does. He studied my life. He's my friend. He'll never let me down. He doesn't know you, Jordan. He doesn't know you. He doesn't, man. I'm just saying. They stand on the stage and they say, I love you too. Right? What, was th- what did I just do? He says, that was never mind. Let me move on. So who was this? I got to bring this back. So who was this for Timothy? It was Paul. I'm going to suggest to you that before Paul ever really was in Timothy's life, before Paul selected Timothy, before he commissioned Timothy to go into ministry with him, I'll bet you Timothy was watching that man's life. Go to Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read a few verses here, but this is the second missionary journey. So follow me. There's been one missionary journey already with Paul. He was with Barnabas, and he's going to all these towns, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's watching the believers come up in their faith. But then on this second missionary journey, he's with Silas. And now here we are in Acts 16, and they are introduced to Timothy. It says in verse 1, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along the journey, so he circumcised him. Whoa. Let's change for pain tolerance, he commissioned him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was Greek. As they traveled, now as they, this is the they now, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Do you see that? Timothy was selected by Paul. He was commissioned to go into ministry with him. But remember, we talked about that first journey that already happened. Did you know that when Paul and Barnabas came through Lystra, they went through on the way out, and they came through Lystra again on the way back? Timothy resided in that town. He lived there. So can't you just imagine Timothy sitting somewhere in a congregation listening to Paul preach, watching Paul walk and have conversations in the streets? He was an influencer. He was a role model to Timothy well before he even knew he existed. Makes you think about the way you live your life, right? The way I live my life. You never know who's watching you. All the time. Just as Timothy was watching and listening and taking notes on Paul's life. Somebody is watching, listening, and taking notes on yours, on mine. So who do you look up to? I'm going to ask you that a few times because I have a feeling that some of you don't know how to answer that question. These role model types of relationships often change as our ambitions change, right? As we grow up, they change. When I was five, I wanted to be Batman. I, I, in fact, I was Batman. I'm not kidding. I mean, you know, Ross was up here like taking his shirt off. Well, pulling the shirt back and Superman logo. Look, Batman didn't wear a T-shirt. Batman had a suit that would put itself on him. That dude was awesome. I had his underwear. 
I had his toothbrush. I slept in his sleeping bag. All of that was true when I was five. But now, well, it's all still true, but I'm just saying, Batman is, he's legit. That dude knows what he's doing. Gotham City, a strike back. No, I do want to tell you about a serious role model for me, and I'm going to do it simply because he's not here. But our pastor, Ross Parsley, was a role model for me well before I knew him. Most of you don't know it, but we didn't even meet until three years ago. But that man's old. <laughs> he might look young, right? But he's old. He's been around. He's been a worship pastor for almost 20 years before he moved here. And I, now listen, there's a big gap between this hellion of a kid that struggled in his teenage years to I went to Oral Roberts University studying local church pastoral theology so that I could be a pastor in the local church. There's a big gap there, and you and I, we're going to have to go to coffee and talk about it because I don't have time to get into the whole story. But when I went to ORU, I was a human sponge for the things of God. I'd only been saved one year. And I went to Oral Roberts University. And if you ever go there and you go into like the different, you know, prayer tower, you go into Christ Chapel, there's all these murals and these pictures. Um, what do they call that? Where there's pictures everywhere, a mirage, what do they call that? A collage, mirage, collage, blah, blah, <laughs> tomato, tomato. Okay, there's this collage of pictures. And our pastor, he's all over that. He looks like, like 13 years old, but he's leading worship at one or he's leading worship at Oral Roberts University, and he's going on these mission teams with musicians, and he's leading. And then he moves to Colorado at New Life, and he's the worship pastor there. And I would go down to Dallas to these worship conferences, the National Worship Institute. I would go up to Colorado Springs, where Ross is this morning at New Life, and I would sit, and I would listen to him preach. I would listen to him talk. And he's the one who taught me that my personal worship it's the most important thing, that what I do in public and the worship that I present in a congregation has to be an overflow of my personal worship. He taught me how to raise up a team of worshipers that are artists. Well before I ever knew him, he was a role model in my life. Who do you look up to? I chose him. I chose Ross. It's kind of weird now to think about all the stars that aligned, right? And here we are doing ministry together, and there's such a kindred spirit amongst us. And he does correct me from time to time. I make errors, bonehead moves, but we share a camaraderie that really now I can look back on and say, man, you were speaking in my life about these things, and, and we share the common knowledge then of what we want to produce here. Who do you look up to? There are two polar camps in this discussion on role models. And I, I want to put them up on the screen so you can see this. There are those that are skeptics and there are those that are fanatics, okay? So I have a feeling that some of you can't answer the question of who you look up to, but I'm going to define for you these two positions. The fanatics, they can't get enough of their role models. These are the type of people that usually don't have many real friends. They hide here in fanatic land. Their lives are out of balance. They care so much about people that don't even know they exist. Some people will even give their lives for them, right? You see those, you know, those lines of people waiting 
14 hours so that they can see Justin Bieber. And then there are the skeptics. And these are the people that don't think that having role, no role models is even necessary. You know what the irony is? They don't have very many real friends either because they're boring. They have no imagination or time to waste on such pettiness as to have role models. Can I suggest to you that I think we need to live somewhere in the balance, somewhere in the middle? And listen, I do believe that as I studied this week, the Lord gave me a word for us as one chapel. And I'm going to read it to you. And it defines the balance of having role models in your life. So I want you to listen really closely with your ears wide open. Here it is. One chapel, choose your role models wisely, but do choose them. Don't give up on having people in your life that you look up to, no matter how young or how old you might be. If we neglect these type of relationships, we'll miss out on fuel for our dreams and confidence to spur us on in life as it unfolds. Remember that it's okay if these people fail you. In fact, many of them probably will. So just chalk it up as humanists, learn from their mistakes, and press on. In the end, listen to this, we will all learn from experience, but it doesn't have to be our own. And lastly, make sure Jesus is your first and primary role model because he's the only one that will never let you down. Is that good? Can you take that? Role models, look, I don't care if you're 65. Have somebody that you're looking up to in your life. Those of you that are 16, pick them wisely, but do choose role models. You get to learn from their experiences. It's the beautiful thing about people that are in that category of our lives. Let's move on then to the third one. And these are the people that choose us back. I'd call this our community so that I can put it in an umbrella, but we talked about mentors also being able to be in this, people maybe that disciple you. But these are the people that choose you back. I think these are the most rewarding kind of relationships. They're also the most demanding. Even Jesus himself had trouble with this, you know. He chose 12 disciples. They chose him back. And then one denied him. One betrayed him. Couldn't he have chose differently? He was fully God, right? Fully man. He could have chose people that wouldn't even talk back to him. Wouldn't ask him any questions. Just, just follow me, man. I'm going that way. But he didn't. Why? Jesus knew that relationships are messy. And he wanted to demonstrate that he was willing to go through them for all of us. These people that choose you back kind of relationships are often the messiest. They are often the root of our most hurtful memories. Think about this. In a more and more individualistic society, with less and less marriage, there are fewer and fewer parents choosing to raise fewer and fewer kids. In turn, people are spending more and more and more time alone. Right? There's an epidemic of orphans in our world. But I think in the American culture, there's an epidemic of people with an orphan mindset. Right? They're companionless. They're going well into their 30s and 40s, and they've not found a partner to spend their life with. Hence the uprising of websites where you can find your mate. Right? The fatherless, all-time high. 
I can't imagine what my life would have been like if my father would have been around. And there are so many like it. Because the fact is that a marriage of 65 years, lifelong friends sharing memories over their retirement, a family that endures the test of time, a church that is full of people that are truly knit together, like the one in the book of Acts. These are the types of relationships that are rare. But when you find them, they're rarely broken. That's what I love about One Chapel. I love the relationships, the people that are knit together. So who was this for Timothy, his community? Like I said before, we could put Paul here because he obviously chose him. In fact, did you know that Paul refers to Timothy as his son several times? My son in the faith, dear son. But on a community level, I think, and as you read scripture, you'll see that the church at Ephesus was Timothy's community. The Ephesian people are the people that he kept retreating to, that he kept going back to. If you read through Acts, Timothy will go out. He'll do some ministry, and he comes back to Ephesus. This was his community. These were the people that chose him back. And listen, I know it's an elementary parallel, but it's true for me. It's real for me. I could only picture it this way. In my life, it's you. It's one chapel. How great are the stories of the people that attend this church, of where they came from? 20 months into it, the lives that have been changed and touched and your families being joined to other families. It's a powerful thing for Casey and I. It wasn't an easy deal. You know, Pastor Ross is coming out with a book here in a few weeks, July 1st, and he talks a little bit about my story, and I don't have a whole lot of time to go into it, but... I learned some hard lessons about community when I moved here. You see, even after I surrendered my life to the Lord, that same stubborn rebellion that I dealt with as a teenager kept coming back around for me. I could never really shake it. It was the fact that I was living for Jesus, but I was in control of my life. I always thought the grass would be greener on the other side, right? I always felt like we could never find our community, that we could never settle somewhere. We just never felt home. But it was in my relationship with Ross and the way he spoke into my life and the way he held back and the way he let me experience. It was the tension between those two things that he embraced me with a compassionate arm, but he also was able to speak truth into my life in a way that nobody else has to this point. And so we came here. But here was the key for me. I had to let go. I had to give up control. We have to give up control to gain community. We have to give up control to gain community. This goes into your time management. Do you spend most of your time on you or on other people? I'm about to get a hard lesson on that when I have a little girl. I'm a hobbyist. I love to be out kayaking, mountain biking, wakeboarding. You fill in the blank. If you have a boat, call me. Wayne, love you. I'll put gas in it for real. Somebody won't let me, though. But that's the reality, right? 
is that we've got to give up control to gain community. Listen, can I go this far to say that if you feel like, hey, I'm all alone in this life, you've got to learn how to delegate. You've got to learn how to accept delegation. Not everything has to be done your way. You might be the kind of person that you just feel like the grass is greener over there. And so you just keep hopping around job to job and peer groups changing. And maybe even your significant other, that thing keeps changing for you. Look, this goes all the way down to the way we operate as a church. I want to encourage all of you, every single one of you, to prayerfully consider being a part of a connect group and being a part of Team One. Because if we don't give up that control, then we leave a few people doing all the work. And look, I don't even have that in my notes. I said it in the first service, and I knew I was stepping on some toes. But here's the reality. You might be walking around this life, and you might be saying, hey, nobody accepts me. There's nobody in my life. You will gain community if you join those two things, I promise. And we will carry the load together. Did you know that if everybody served on Team One, and look, not in the place maybe you feel like, I only want to do this. Give up control. Serve where there's a need. Right? Look, I don't get to do this very often, so I'm going to step on toes, okay? Here's the, here's the real deal. If all of us were a part of Team One, if we served somewhere where there was a need, we could probably get away with all doing this maybe two times a year. Two times a year, you would have to be in the hallway setting up the coffee carts, tearing them down. But instead, there's 20%, maybe 30% in our church, which is a good number of people doing all the work. Those of you that do serve on Team One, those of you that are connect group leaders, that are in a connect group, I commend you, continue to do it. Don't try to control those environments. Be a part of them. Amen? Can you take that? I mean, here's the deal. Life is just better when we are a part of something that doesn't revolve around us. Have you ever heard this phrase? It's not what you're doing, but it's who you're with. Be a part of community. I want to encourage two types of people, and then I'm going to close. To those of you that are always trying to change your circumstances, your job, your peers, your location, Please don't get caught up in the idea that the grass is greener on the other side. Find relationships, plug into them, give of yourself, give up control, and let people in. And the second group of people, and I want to speak really delicately to you, to those of you that have been wounded in relationships, that there's reason you don't let people in. I want you to forgive Go through the process, link up with somebody that can help you, but I want you to forgive. And then I want you to do just as the other group. I want you to give up control and let people in. I'm going to read a quote to you from a movie. I don't promote the movie, but it's 2004. There's a movie called Shall We Dance has Richard Gere in it. And here's the quote. I want to read it to you. It says, we need a witness to our lives. There's a billion people on the planet. So what does any one life really mean? 
And she says in the movie, but in a marriage, but I'll say it like this, but in true relationship, you're promising to care about everything, the good things, the bad things, the terrible things, the mundane things, all of it, all of the time, every day. You're saying your life will not go unnoticed. You're saying that your life will not go unwitnessed because I will be your witness. We need witnesses in our lives, every single one of us. Relationships were shaped by them, the good and the bad of them all. Life was never meant to be done alone. Can you close your eyes for a moment? I want you to soul search for just a brief time here. I want you to think about the people in your life that chose you. So everybody in the room, I just want you to close your eyes. I want you to open your heart. And I want you to think about the people in your life that chose you. Maybe those people failed you. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they passed faith down to you. But no matter what the case is, I want you to recognize that they chose you. And I want you to thank the Lord for them. Just right now, think of those people. Who chose you? And thank God for them. This is the beginning of forgiveness for some. And now, I want you to think about someone that you choose. Maybe it's somebody that today you're choosing for the first time because you had given up on the idea of having role models. Maybe it's somebody that you have chosen long ago and you've been watching them from afar and they, they speak into your life without even knowing it. I want you to thank God for that person, for those people. And then there are those that choose you back. Think about them. The hardest, the most demanding, yet the most rewarding kind of relationships. Who chooses you back? And now with every head bowed, every eye closed, some of you need to choose Jesus back. Maybe you've never let him in. He's not been your Lord and Savior and you hear me up here talking about him and you want to surrender your life to him today. Maybe you just need to come back to him again. Can I tell you that he chose you? Jeremiah 1.5, before I even formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. He chose you. We just got to choose him back. So all over the room, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want you to shoot your hand up in the air if today you want to make a decision to choose him back. Come on, just lift your hand up. I see that hand over there. I see that hand. Come on, your heart's beating out of your chest. You know you need to choose Jesus. You know you need to give up control. This is just a public display. That's all it is. I see those hands. Anybody else? Okay, One Chapel, you can put those hands down right now. I just want us all to pray a simple prayer. I want you to repeat it after me. Say, dear Jesus, I surrender. Say, dear Jesus, I surrender. I give everything to you. My life is not my own. 
I repent and I turn to you. Jesus, come into my heart. Make me a new creation. Give me new life as I surrender to your will, not mine. Amen.